Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Joanne Molinaro. Joanne is a partner in Foley's Chicago office, where she's a member of the firm's bankruptcy and litigation practice groups. This conversation is a bit unique in that in addition to talking about Joanne's path to law and path to Foley, I also ask her a bit about her many interests outside of legal practice. This is because over the past six months or so, Joanne has developed quite the following on TikTok. So we do begin our conversation with Joanne talking about why it was she became a lawyer. She shares how she had a job immediately after college where she was a resume writer, which convinced her she needed to go to law school. She talks about how she learned about Foley and Lerner, and she shares about how the firm really supported her on her path to partnership. But during the back half of the conversation, we talk about this recent phenomenon of her on TikTok. She was profiled in Bon Appetit magazine for her beautiful videos capturing her cooking and sharing personal stories. I love this conversation because Joanne really epitomizes the fact that Foley lawyers, but that also attorneys in general, can have a multitude of interests outside of the law. Joanne's happen to be relatively public, but I hope she inspires everyone to really pursue everything you're passionate about and for us all to see that it can be done even while you're a busy partner at a law firm. So I really hope you enjoy our conversation and I hope you heed Joanne's advice on well-being and on the importance of committing to yourself. Joanne, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Okay, let's start how I usually start. Let's jump right in. Can you give me your professional introduction? That intro you've probably given a thousand times on networking panels or with clients. Sure. I'm Joanne Molinaro. I am a partner in the litigation department at Foley and Lardner. I specialize in commercial litigation and bankruptcy litigation. I am, in essence, a trial lawyer. All right. The question I also ask everyone next is, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. So born and raised in Chicago or the outlying suburbs, I went to the University of Illinois in Urbana for college, and I went to the University of Chicago for law school. So I have kept it pretty close to home my entire life. And as a little girl, was were you just like, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up? Or what, what were you like as a kid? I did not want to be a lawyer when I grew up. I was very rebellious, I guess, is the term my parents would have used to describe me. I was not a typically obedient Asian daughter. I talked back a lot, a habit I probably picked up from my mother. And she would always say, you should just be a lawyer because you are always arguing against your parents. Literally, I've heard that since I was a little girl. And because of that, I was like, I'm never going to be a lawyer. Because I felt she was taunting me into it. And, uh, but lo and behold, I became a lawyer. And I realized, you know, out of all the career choices that I had, law really fit with me for a lot of different reasons. Um, Maybe 
possibly because my mom was onto something. I can be very argumentative. I I can be fairly uh, combative, I guess, when I feel like I am in the right or my position is right or in my client's cases are right. And I can also be very stubborn <laughs> when it comes to that position. But yeah, that's kind of how it happened. So definitely did not want to be a lawyer when I was younger. That's funny. You saying that reminded me of dynamics I had with my own mother, which was in some ways, I would say she raised me to be a lawyer because yeah, maybe I'm wired to be a little bit argumentative. But on the other hand, she was constantly making me defend my position as if she was trying to raise a little trial lawyer. And we saw how that went. I'm not a lawyer. I don't practice anymore. (laughs) But my mom was a lawyer who never practiced. But you're bringing back these memories because whenever you get a kid who... I guess, can state their case well. It's like, you should be a lawyer when you grow up. And then and then I think at some point, I think I accepted it very early on. So like by high school, I was like, yeah, I'm probably going to go to law school. What for you switched? Was it like, what did you intend to do when you went to college? Did you know law school was on the horizon? No, not at all. I went to college really not having a good sense of what I wanted to do. I thought that I was going to major in vocal performance I really wanted a career in music when I was in high school. And, you know, I did well enough at at music where a lot of my teachers told me, yeah, you should either quit college and go to Broadway or, you know, pursue music. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. But my parents, again, were like, we're not going to pay for college you <laughs> major in vocal performance. So I thought that I would double major in vocal performance and whatever, like something that I liked, like English. I loved to read and I loved to write. And I figured at the end of the day, if the vocal performance thing didn't work out, I could just teach English teach high school English, which I probably still would love to do because I love reading, I love teaching, and I love school. So that was kind of the general plan. I quickly decided I didn't want to pursue vocal performance. After about a semester of voice lessons, I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this. And so I stayed with the English because I liked it. I loved reading. I loved my professors. I loved writing. I took a lot of creative writing in college as well because that was something I enjoyed doing. And then the idea really was when I graduated, well, it's it's too late to switch to get a teaching certificate, but that's okay. I'll graduate with a bachelor's and pursue a master's in teaching and teach high school English. That was really the plan. In between college and the what I thought would be future grad school and teaching, I had to get a job. Like I, you know, I didn't know what to do. So I think that anxiety that many college students feel, and, and mine was a little bit exaggerated because I ended up graduating a year early from college because I it turned out that I had enough credits to enter college as a sophomore. So I was like, oh, I'll take advantage of this, save a year's worth of tuition, you know? And so I, I ended up graduating college in three years. And so I felt like the whole like adulting thing kind of crept on me like really fast. And I was like, Oh my God, I need to get a job. Like I can't, you know, can't graduate without a job. And it was a very kind of provincial thing. I mean, it doesn't happen anymore, but I graduated and I went through the want ads of a physical newspaper. What? Yeah. With the marker. (laughs) I I circled the ones that I thought would apply to me. I mean, it was very much like that. And I just wanted something to kind of tide me over until I figured out what I wanted to do with grad school. 
And I ended up getting a job as a resume writer for a very large outplacement firm. Outplacement firm is a company that's often hired by large companies like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, or, you know, to outplace their executives that have been laid off as part of a large layoff or some other kind of problem. So it's part of like a severance package, you know, like you're going to get severance, but we're also going to hook you up with an outplacement firm that's going to help you get settled at your next place. So that was my job was writing resumes for the former vice president of marketing at Coca-Cola. I'm just using, you know, hypothetical. Right. An example. Right, right. That literal, but yes. Not, Not actually, but you know what I mean? Things like that. So that's what I did. And, you know, in writing the resumes and reading through file after file of people who you know, did so much with their lives, in many cases without even college degrees, because there was an era in America when that was totally possible. You just kind of work your way up from being the plant manager all the way to being the vice president of operations for huge Fortune 200 companies. A little bit of ambition crept into me. And I said, why? I could do this. I'm smart enough to do this. If I wanted, I could do this. Why, why am I settling for, you know, becoming a high school English teacher at some small school, which of course, in retrospect, would have been a completely challenging, really scary yeah. job. <laughs> but, you know, at the time I was young and I, I was just like, well, why don't you just see like, what your options are out there. You were so focused on doing this one thing. You feel like it's your only answer. Maybe it's not. And uh, I actually was like, well, should I get an MBA? Should I get a degree in medicine? What should I do? And I was like, well, I hate selling things. That's really not my thing. So no MBA. I faint at the sight of blood. So yeah, medicine (laughs) is not for me. And uh, then I had to do a resume for a lawyer. A very, you know, modest. She was a sole practitioner. She did trust and estates work. And I and you know, I was like, I, I could do this. Like maybe I should be a lawyer. This sounds like a very nice, you know, humble profession. Like that's what I thought. Because she wasn't big law, she wasn't anything like that. She was just she was doing her own thing. And I was like, I, I think I could do this. So and then I thought about my mom's words. You should be a lawyer. And I was like, <laughs> You're oh, like she's gonna get the last laugh. <laughs> yeah. So I studied for the LSAT. I had like three weeks and I, yeah, I was like, all right, again. Wait, wait, hold on. Just pause. So you were like, maybe I should be a lawyer. Then you're like, wait, if I want to be a lawyer, the LSAT's in a month or three weeks, I need to go be a lawyer now. Yeah. So I had to study. And again, it was like the olden days. I went to the bookstore, physically drove to the bookstore, went to the study book section, bought like three fat Princeton review, you know, Kaplan those kind of books. And I just did practice tests as much as I could. No computer, nothing. It just, you know, scratch paper, you know, pen and paper. And I did that. I hired a tutor who I actually ended up taking just a weekend course with him to just, you know, do like tricks of LSATs and stuff like that. I took the LSAT, uh, did well enough uh, to apply. I only applied to two law schools. Um, I applied to uh, Northwestern and I applied to University of Chicago. I got into both. And so, and then in the meantime, I decided, well, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I might as well go work for a law firm. So I went and I worked for a very three lawyer law firm that practiced immigration law in the suburbs in Highland Park. I worked as a paralegal and I basically just filled out immigration forms, took interviews, did intake, you know, whatever the lawyers needed, I did. 
And so I did that for a year. And then I went to law school at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. All right. I have some questions. I'm going to set this in time a bit. So how long was it between undergrad and you starting law school? So I graduated in 2000 and I started law school in 2001. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yes, that is an interesting gap between, I think I want to go to school for, to be a vocalist and performance. You know, there's a potential, you know, Broadway trajectory turning into English teachers. Great. Let's do English teacher. No, no, no. I want to be a lawyer. Yeah. It, you know, and I think Alexis, what that is really speaks to is that anxiety as a a 20 something year old. Again, for me, I think it was a little exaggerated because I lost a year graduating a year early and I didn't graduate with my class. I didn't have kind of their like, you know, angst with me, you know, to maybe calm me down. (laughs) But I felt like if I didn't make these decisions really quickly, I would miss the bus and then I would be left behind. And so I kind of did the best I could with the information and the tools I had at my disposal, largely because of working at that resume writing place where I was like, oh, I, I see all these different careers in front of me. It's like I'm at it's like I'm at TJ Maxx. I'm choosing all the different, you know. And so it was like, well, what fits me best? That's kind of what I was trying on all these different hypothetical careers. And I said, I think this one fits okay. So I'm going to go for it. And luckily, uh, as luck would have it, you know, it, it worked out. No, and we will talk about law school, but I just want to reflect on that a bit because, of course, a large point of this podcast is for Foley attorneys and Foley people to mm-hmm. learn about Foley. That's great. But we're getting a lot of law students who are listening, and I think the service that we're doing is showing nobody really knows what's going on. Like, I think we all like to think of someone who's really successful. And of course, you know, you're a partner at Bully and Lardner. And we'll talk about, you know, some of the many other endeavors that you have going on. But they're like, Joanne Molinaro is successful. She probably knew when she was 40 years old <laughs> that she was going to go to the University of Chicago. And, and so I think it's so important for people to hear that the, the path, you know, and we'll talk about your practice, but that decision-making and how some ways it's serendipity that causes us to land in a given profession. (laughs) It really is. I think it is serendipity has such a huge role in it. But I also think that I, you know, I get these questions a lot too, Alexis. I get a ton of college students. My DMs are basically 95% college high school students who are like, hey, do you have any advice for law school? And I always tell people, The best thing that you can do to set yourself up for any success, whether it's in law or otherwise, is to do the best at what you're doing right now, you know, because you never know when the doors will be open because of a decision you made in high school. So it sounds very pedantic and very parental, but it's like, Mm -hmm. get straight A's if you can, you know, study hard, do well at school. And that was something that was drilled into me by my parents. So I did well enough in high school where I, you know, got into a really good college. I did well enough in college where I, you know, had a good enough GPA to get me into law school, you know? And by that time I had built study habits that were rock solid, which is what allowed me to take the LSATs in a short period of time and still do okay. So, I mean, those things while are boring to hear and maybe not as fun to hear, Those things are so important because they, you know, will last you. Those habits that you build in high school and college, that's going to take you wherever it is you're meant to go. And I've recently started translating that type of advice into this idea of being where you are. 
So it is great that you are planning. And this isn't isn't just for law students. This is for anyone. It's great that you're planning that next job, that next thing, that next whatever. But are you focused on where you are right now so that you can make the best that you can either get, you know, and if, if the grades aren't working because you don't like your major, well, maybe that's the time to find a new major. If something's not working, find an aspect of it that you can enjoy so you can take that experience because inevitably it's going to be what builds. And I could go off into a whole like probably motivational coaching thing, which we <laughs> won't do. But I just, I see that come up a lot, particularly with students who are like, yeah, I'm in eighth grade. Yeah, I'm in 12th grade. I'm a sophomore. I'm a 1L. And they're everywhere else except for where they actually are. They're planning what they're supposed to do when they're 38, <laughs> when they're 52. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's totally right. I think that I, when you actually, the way that you described it is exactly the way it was. I was like, I don't, I don't really know what college I want to go to. I just want to know that I need to get straight A's in high school. I need to graduate in the top 10% of my class. Like those are the things that were so, I was so obsessed with in high school. And then it was the same thing in college. I was like, I just want to get straight A's and do the best that I can. I have no real idea what I want to do with it afterwards. But because I was so focused on that moment and being present and making a success out of those years that I was there, it opened up a lot of doors for me that I didn't even realize. Like those were open. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very, that's a good way of putting it, like being present in that moment. And and I'm not saying don't plan for the future, but you get, yeah. you get what I'm saying. Well, okay. Talk to me about law school. You go to the university of Chicago. How was that for you? What was that like? It was really amazing. And in many ways, it validated my decision that like, this is the right path for me. I, I mean, I'm 41 now and I can look back and be like, well, you could have been a traffic reporter too and really been good at that, you know? But And that is true. Like, I seriously think that there's a side of me that would have been really good at traffic reporting. But I think that when I went to law school, I was like, oh, wow, like this is this is the school I've been missing out on. I feel like my whole life, it's what I was prepared for. I loved law school. I loved my professors. I loved the University of Chicago. I felt in many ways it was the perfect school for me, too. I mean, I'm very liberal, but I'm also like very like logical and analytical. And I think that the school really spoke to both sides of me in some ways. You know, they're very conservative in in many ways, but I liked that. I liked that it challenged me in that way, you know, and I had some amazing professors. Like I really loved my professors. I did a TikTok on kind of how the University of Chicago really shaped me and how grateful I was for going there. And I basically it was Professor Curry, my property professor, who I adore. He kept a copy of the, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution in his breast pocket at all times. And he would take it out and read it. And sometimes it would be in a different language. And he would like he would like read it in German. Like he's, he was like, that does not sound real. That's like this like stereotypical hype, like made up law professor. But he's real. Movie law professor. He's yes. He would ride his bicycle to school every single day, rain or shine. And we have pictures of him with an umbrella while he's riding his bicycle and every single hypothetical was about his granddaughter and her pony. I mean, this is the stuff that you see in movies. And I had that. I had him for as many classes as I could get him for because I adored him. And then, of course, I had Catherine McKinnon, who is, you know, the creator of sexual harassment law. She taught me sex equality and coming from a very religious and you know, background, it really opened my eyes to, yeah, no, women don't need to submit to men. No, <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to, that, that's not something I'm going to buy into. And she, she helped me articulate that. 
in a way that really resonated with me and stuck with me. Not to mention the fact that she was just a very admirable woman. Like I loved everything about her. She, I think, taught either guest lectured or did something at the University of Michigan. And I did not get a chance to take that. It's actually one of my regrets. But I do think that's a real benefit of when you are able to go to some of these elite institutions is you get the chance to talk with, to see, to engage with these just giants in their field in person, which is amazing and can be daunting, but it also teaches you their they're just people. Human. They're human. I mean, she was so much smaller in real life than I, <laughs> I literally expected this giant of a woman to walk in. I'm like, oh my God, I think she's like maybe two inches taller than me. <laughs> and she, you know, she had these beautiful like bouffant hairstyles and like, she was just, you know, whatever you, you come into these things, you know, oh, the creator of sexual harassment law, she's gonna be really tall and she's gonna be very statuesque, you know, wear navy suits. No, she's waltzes in and like these silk, you know, blouses, her hair looks like Anna Green Gables. And I mean, I'm, she was so beautiful. And I was like, wow, it's not what I expected. But I love that. And I mean, talk about missed opportunities you missed on uh taking a class with her i missed on taking a class with uh, barack obama because mm-hmm. you know a professor who, who the heck is this obama guy like nobody knew who he was right you're like nah i don't need to take that it's fine <laughs> yeah his class was on fridays i was like i don't do class on fridays <laughs> <laughs> so i didn't take his class because it was at like six o'clock at night which obviously makes sense in retrospect but i feel so stupid that i didn't take his class and it was on race but like, not only was it, you know, Professor Obama, it was on race. And uh, to this day, I rue the fact that I was so stingy with my time. But yeah, I mean, we all have those, I guess. <laughs> but other than that, it sounds like law school is amazing. was great. And I have to say, so you referenced the TikTok. And so for those who don't know, and we'll talk a bit about this maybe in, in a few minutes, because for those who do know, I'm driving them crazy by not just talking <laughs> about your TikTok presence. But yeah, you have... A, a large presence on TikTok and other social media because there's these other endeavors like that you pursue, you know, your handle on Instagram, I know is the Korean vegan, but this other world of cooking and food and culture and teaching, and we will definitely touch on it, but that's what you were referencing when you talked about TikTok because for some, that is a new social media platform they have not heard of yeah. perhaps. Mm-hmm. So that's what you were referring to. And when you said your DMs, similarly, a lot of interaction, I'm sure with students and others through TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. And we will get to that. But first we're gonna keep talking about this march to being a lawyer. So you go to the University of Chicago. In general, you enjoy it. So how does Foley come on the scene? Oh, Foley came on the scene very, you know, typically, I would say. Uh, It was going through OCI my, you know, summer of 1L year. I was actually working at a hospital in their general counsel's office. That that was my summer of 1L year summer program, if you will. And I worked in the general counsel's office and the general counsel was looking through kind of the list of different law firms that I was considering. She's like, oh, Foley and Lardner they're fabulous because the hospital was actually a client of Foley and Lardner and the GC out of all the firms that I had kind of on my list. She's like, that's, that's a really good firm. You should think about them. And that meant a lot. As I'm sure you recall, OCI is like, the only thing that I remember is how much my face hurt from smiling so much. I mean, I was just severe, like hive inducing anxiety and lots of bone stretching. I felt like that's all I remember. All of the firms tend to blur. They do. They don't. It's hard to differentiate between any of them, particularly when you don't have 
if you're not from a family of lawyers and you haven't heard of any of the names, like they might as well be like names of fraternities and sororities you've never heard of before. No, no, they all say the same thing, you know, oh yeah, we do good training. We give pro bono credit and, you know, don't worry, you'll get lots of experience as a junior associate. Like, oh, they said all the right things and all the buildings look exactly the same, you know, so diversity, diversity, diversity. We want Asian people, you know, like it was the same. So hearing my GC, the one that I worked for over the summer, kind of single Foley and Lardner out, that like stuck in my head. And then I, um, I summered, I ultimately summer associated with Foley and Lardner, my, my 2L year. And I had a wonderful time. I mean, I, I genuinely, Alexis, I had the best time. I worked a lot with Michael Conway, who I know is no longer with the firm, but I felt like he was like my dad. He was so cool. He's such a nice guy. I'm just nodding because I'm like, me too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's amazing. I had the best time. I mean, and it was in the heyday, you know, it was I graduated in 2001. So it was in like 2000 when I was on my summer associateship. With, no, no. It would have been like 2002 or 2000. 2003, when I had my summer clerkship with Foley. So, I mean, we, we did our Foley Fest in Milwaukee. So good. Yeah. <laughs> the associates like ran into LL Cool J at the gym because it was during Summer Fest. I mean, this is like, you know, we, we did these lavish partner dinners. I went to George Simon's house and we had beautiful. It's like, the heyday, though. It also, for, for law students, there was this heyday pre Great Recession. Yes of summer associate programs. And in a way I experienced that because I think law school JD year wise, we're four years apart thereabout. So I'm just, I'm December. Yeah. Yeah. So it would like reoccur. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm December 07. So I know exactly what you're, yes. Right before. Yeah. Right before the bubble was when everything was great. And, yep. you know, everyone was getting, I mean, you basically had to like get drunk or embarrass yourself in order to not get an offer. I mean, it was just wonderful. And I had the best time. I loved my summer associateship. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I say this without any bit of, uh, you know, cynicism or anything like that. I think my decision to come to Foley has been validated like 20 times over since that, you know, summer associateship. Don't get me wrong. It was a brutal reawakening when I came as a first year, as I'm sure you remember, it's not the same. (laughs) Well, the thing is, you're supposed to do work. And so mind you, everyone listening, this is not me commenting on what it's like to be a summer associate bowling now, which I also think is great. But I also do think you're going to do a lot of great work. And even I like I did like a writ of certiori to the Supreme Court. I got to go to a trial (laughs) with Jim Dasso. But it is very different because as a summer, the purpose is to learn the people because you're not going to have the time to learn the people when you're coming back and doing work. So that is very different. But that's you're bringing back all these memories. And I'm like, don't I don't I just want to like do a list of the fun things that happened, which actually I'll say one thing that I hope the firm can bring back maybe one day when we're not dealing with a global pandemic, but they used to do like a mini golf in Chicago. That was so fun. So for me, that was summer of 2006. And I think it was maybe like nine holes or something like that. But it's funny because to this day, you know, as you know, Chicago's renovated. But I've heard that there are still divots in the hallway for the stairwell from like golf balls hitting the wall. So awesome. <laughs> from the because the, the associates would take this very seriously and would make 
different holes that you could hit around the office. So you might be in someone's office, you might be in the hall, you might be in a stairwell. So that was fantastic. So note to, to my legal recruiting team, you know, if we could ever bring that back, let's do it. That's awesome. Um, partners took it seriously too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So you have a great summer. You joined Foley at this point and and maybe you could speak a little bit about how you knew litigation was the choice. Honestly, to me, everything you've said is screamed litigation, but maybe that's not obvious to others. But yeah, speak about choosing your practice and then and then what happened. So I didn't think I would be a litigator. I came into my summer saying I checked the box for transactional. I wanted to be a transactional lawyer because I knew my personality, which is I get very anxious by confrontation. I don't like being rude. I really hate it. It probably upsets me more than the person who is being the subject of my rudeness. So I thought that's what litigation was about, being fighty, being mean to people, and that causes me a great deal of anxiety. So I was like, I'd rather be in a part of law where people make deals and you know do those things. And so my first project as a summer associate was like, you know, reviewing lease agreements and, you know, doing that kind of stuff, more transactional in nature. And I, while I enjoyed working with a partner that was assigning me that, I didn't particularly enjoy the project, but I loved the mock trial that we were supposed to do, you know, in that summer associateship. That was, I mean, I think like I worked like 18 hours a day, you know, on the mock trial because I was obsessed with it. And I was like, this is, this is so fun. I love this. And I knew, okay, this is what I was meant to do. Like, this is what I can do. And I remember Marty Bishop, he's no longer at the firm, but I remember we were practicing in front of him and he's like, so you obviously have some experience with this. And I was like, no, I don't. I literally have never done debate, never did anything. I did take theater. The performance, the performance aspect. Exactly. I did a lot of theater and musical theater in in high school and a little bit in college as well. And he's like, well, it's, it's obvious. And I was like, oh, well, so then this is my thing. And I just need to act in front of my anxiety. I just need to like pretend that I'm not anxious. And um, that's basically been my thing. I still get anxious. Status hearing. Oh, my God. I'm like, (laughs) 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 but luckily nobody ever sees it. It I've heard this so many times. Like I did not see any anxiety at all. And I was like, oh, my God, I was about to. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. But I love it. I don't want to say I love hearing that in particular, but like you're a partner at the firm. You've been a partner at Foley for a number of years now. And like I said, I think it's easy for someone on the outside to be like, Joanne obviously is steadfast and has never been afraid of anything in her life. So, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. And we can't possibly walk through all of the past, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so in that that march to partner. But I would love to hear more about about your practice and maybe some, you know, reflections on what you've learned over the years or, you know things as you, you know, sought to become partner at Foley? There's so many things, but it, this goes back to what you had described so elegantly in the beginning, which is being where you are at the moment. And sure, I knew like in my head, like partnership is the trajectory, that's the objective. And that's always nice to kind of have that thing, like be the, the finish line for you or a mini finish line. But again, for me, it was like, I just want to be the best at my job today. That's all I care about. If Jim Dasso gives me an assignment, I want to kick it out of the park for him. You know, I don't, that's all I care about. If Mike Conway says you need to write this brief, I want to make sure that it's the best brief he's ever read. Like 
that's what I focus so hard on. And believe me, it was difficult in the first few years because you're so insecure. You're like, I suck at everything. I- the learning curve is really steep. Even if law school was awesome and you did great, the learning curve to be a practicing lawyer is, I think it's straight up for the first year or two, and then it levels out a little. It definitely levels out when you're like a fourth or fifth year where you feel like, okay, now I know what discovery requests are. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, you don't know anything. And mostly you don't know how well you're doing or how badly you're doing. There are no nice like little forms that people fill out and they say A plus on your, you know, which is something that I think most of us are very used to. So that was very hard. But I think it was because I was so again, obsessed with making sure that I did the best that I could all the time, that the partnership path opened up for me in in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been as easy if I had constantly been so focused on, I need to make partner, I need to make partner, I need to make partner. It's exhausting because it's a long road. It is a long road. It's a marathon. It's like multiple marathons stuck together. And so you, and that's actually really great because when you run a marathon, That's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to cut it up into manageable chunks. Okay, I'm going to run the first three miles at this pace. Then I'm going to run the next, you know, six miles at this pace. And then at the half, I'm going to do this. And, you know, that's what you do. And then the last... You would actually know because you run marathons, just for those who don't know. And I think it's the best analogy for everything. That's true. I mean, like, if I had focused too much on getting to the 26th mile, I probably wouldn't have made it you know, and so I just focused on what I had in front of me. And, you know, this is, I do want to say this, because it is so important to me. There was a time on my path to partnership, when I had to kind of divert my attention from my practice to focus on personal stuff, I was going through a divorce. And it was, it was literally the hardest thing that I'd ever done in my entire life. And there were a number of people at the firm, two women who were partners at the time, who kind of like flanked me, you know what I mean? And like helped me through that process in such an amazing way, probably wouldn't have made it without them. But then I also got so much explicit feedback from the management committee and the partnership selection committee about how they were rallying behind me during that time in my life, which is why, again, that was a moment where I felt like my choice to come to Foley and Lardner was so validated because they were willing to do whatever they they want. I wanted whatever support I needed. They were willing to give me. And I took a year off the path. I was like, just take me out of partnership. I, I don't want to be in consideration right now. My production isn't that great. I need to focus on my personal life and get that in order. And they were like, well, we think you're great and we'll make you partner right now if you want. But if you, if you don't, then that's fine too. Like it was just, it was amazing. I didn't expect that. And uh, again, like I said, I felt very validated in my decision all the way back as a summer associate to come here. As you were saying that, I just thought to myself, that's very Foley. And I wish I had a better way to describe that. But because Foley, I mean, it's a very large firm now to the point that I think we actually fly under the radar of how large we are. We have over a thousand people in the U.S. and we're top 20 by headcount in the U.S. But there's still something that's very like people know people 
the, you know, the, whether it be our CEO, our management committee, partner selection committee, department chairs, they like, they know their people in a way that I think a lot of people would be surprised to know. But what you said just very much showed that. And I want to talk more about some of that, like, you know, personal growth and managing, you know, one's life while on this path. But can you first just talk a little bit about your, your day-to-day practice and what your expertise is? Sure. So uh, like I said, I'm a trial lawyer. And I feel like nowadays, people just kind of helicopter me in, basically like, oh, we need a trial lawyer. (laughs) And so uh, particularly in bankruptcy, because they know that I have an expertise in bankruptcy, I know the bankruptcy code, I've litigated in variety of contexts within a complex chapter 11 um, case. So whenever there is some heated litigation, usually representing a creditor, in a bankruptcy or a committee in a bankruptcy, that's when I get kind of helicoptered in to handle a trial. In bankruptcy, as you may know, uh, we're not necessarily kind of tightly uh, restricted by the federal rules. Bankruptcy courts are courts in equity, so they have a lot of latitude. And you never know, you walk into bankruptcy court for a status hearing and it can turn to a trial and like that. (laughs) The rules are, they're, different. And so I got a taste of this because when I did start my career, it was shortly the Great Recession happened. The only work there was to do, and this was not at full, it was another firm, but the only work there was to do was bankruptcy work. And so you got the litigators being pulled in to do the adversary proceedings. And I remember being like, and I was like a first year, second year being like, okay, let me go ask a bankruptcy attorney how, was it like 2000, rule 2004 discovery works? And then I discovered, oh, the bankruptcy attorneys don't know this. And then I discovered the litigators don't know this. You had to find a litigator who did bankruptcy (laughs) to know how that worked. So yes, it's different over there, should I say. It is a little different. It's different. And it's you have to be prepared to put on evidence at any given time. So it's interesting because there are no jury trials or very rarely jury trials in bankruptcy court. Uh, and so I think there's a misconception that bankruptcy litigators don't really know litigation um, and don't have honed litigation instincts because things rarely go to trial. That's just not true. Things go to trial a lot more. You know, fast litigation. Yeah, faster. Yeah, I had, uh, I remember Bill McKenna and I had nine trials in three days. So it's just, you have to be able to very quickly get uh, get in a position to produce evidence in accordance and inconsistent with the rules of evidence. So you have to be very, very fast. I always feel like when I'm doing a regular litigation, you're like, wait, you're telling me that I actually have two whole weeks to prepare? <laughs> it's very- Or more. It might be months. It might be years. Yeah. I mean, that's a luxury in bankruptcy court. I'm lucky if I get a few days. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. All right, now I am going to switch gears to, I think, some of the other topics some people really want me to cover with you. And let me see, the best way I can set this up is what it seems like to me from the outside is while you are navigating your path at Foley, partnership, you have a lot of other interests, whether they be marathon running, cooking, you know, learning about your Korean culture and fusing that together in your your cooking. And then with the pandemic from, you know, me following you on social media, I can see you've also embraced TikTok and at this point have a following, I think over 800,000. But what I find amazing is you're such a prime example of how you can be a lawyer, a successful lawyer, but also do other things that people would not assume a lawyer would do. So I don't know, reflections, let's see where this takes us over our last like, I don't know, seven to 10 minutes of this, this talk. (laughs) Yeah. 
a lot of it is serendipitous, as you you know referenced before. I did not think any of this would happen. I remember I was talking to Ellen Wheeler like two months ago and I was like, Ellen, Ellen, I think my TikTok is getting too much attention. It has 30,000 followers and now I have close to 900,000 followers. So it's it's sort of crazy how it it blew up. And she's like, wow, you have 30,000 followers on TikTok? And I was like, I don't know how it happened. I literally just started it a week ago, you know? Well, and I see all these skills coming together because like, from what I've gleaned, and I should say, so you and I have not had a chance to talk since I joined the firm. We've been on a couple client pitches together, but we met when I was a summer associate forever ago. So in some ways, we're just like picking up where we left off. But I know you had the, had a blog focused on on food and you've honed these like photography and food photography skills. And it seems to me that as a platform, TikTok just was allowed you to combine all of these things. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. And it actually, it forced me to, if anything, I started TikTok like you as a consumer. I was, you know, it's the global pandemic and there's a lot going on in our country right now. And I felt like, okay, I just, I just need to take a break And I just want some funny videos to make me laugh, you know? And they do that. They do. They're so (laughs) good at that. I mean, like the the prank videos. I mean, like those are so hilarious and all these really innovative ways to say things that are like kind of bothering us about what's happening in our country, but in a really funny way that makes you laugh at things that you Mm -hmm. otherwise would cry at, you know? So that's what TikTok is so good at. And I wanted to be part of that conversation. I honestly started TikTok thinking that I would just sit there and like do funny videos about wearing masks and stuff like that. That's what I thought. But I know how to cook and that's like what I do. So I did one video where I was, it was like horrible grainy quality. I just propped the phone up like on the wall and chopping up some potatoes and onions and I threw it in a pan. My husband, you can hear him yelling at a student in the background. He's the piano teacher. And you know, he's sitting there banging away, you know, on his oh, you know, doing his Chopin etude. And you know, so it was like completely unproduced. It was just whatever. I threw the potatoes in the, you know, pan. And the next thing I know, it goes viral. And I think it has over a million views now of just me making some potatoes. It was really a humble dish. And I was like, well, if people want this stuff, you know, I cook every day. I'm vegan, so I don't really eat out that much. And so I cook every day and I'm happy to throw on a, the phone against the wall every time I make a, a meal. But then, you know, after a while, the the food blogger in me was like, oh, these are so ugly. Like, I can't, like, the lighting is so bad. And I do know a thing or two about lighting and photography and videography, Uh, And sooner or later, it became, you know, a more produced thing. And then I added the storytelling component to it because, you know, it's a video and you can't possibly do a proper recipe tutorial in six in one minute. Yeah, it's not possible. So why not just talk about stuff that's like on my mind? And it was like random stuff like, oh, my mom, she yelled at this lady who called me fat. <laughs> like this one time my dad made me cry at the marathon, you know, things like that. And it resonated. Yeah. Well, I would say I love it. And I will just describe this a little bit also for those who haven't been on TikTok. But as Joanne said, so TikToks are short. I think the option is like 15 seconds or a minute or something in between. And so, you know, many of Joanne's videos are, you know, really these like, I think now these like beautiful shots of you preparing whatever you're preparing, and you'll usually put the title of what that is. And the voiceover is frequently, you know, a personal story 
that may relate to the dish that may not. But it's it's interesting. I love that you said that because you're right for you to be like, here's how to cook this dish that may have many, many, many steps and do it in one minute and allow people to even be able to attempt it themselves is probably unlikely. But for you to share something so they can listen. And there's something very soothing, I think, about watching someone cook. And I'm sure we are tapping into some much deeper, like, need that, you know, in our country, like this, like it comforting to see food and all of that. But yeah, you definitely tapped into something. And it's just so interesting because I know also that you're working on a cookbook that will be published next year. And, you know, all while doing these, these many things and that, you know, your path is, you know, this is not something you did overnight. You did not become a partner at a law firm and, you know, pick up all these cooking skills and photography and all that. But it does feel like a moment where so many things are coming together. It is. And I think that, again, going back to, I keep harping on this, but like doing the best that you can at what's in front of you at that time is just sort of like second nature to me. But I also think that, you know, people who know me and have worked with me know I'm a spreadsheet gal. I really am very regimented. I like spreadsheets and charts and, you know, uh, I am very much into task lists and whiteboards and diagramming my thinking and I'm very regimented. And that became like 10 billion times more so with the global pandemic and having to work remotely. And so it was very much like, okay, Monday through Saturday is Foley and Lardner. Okay. Monday through Friday is largely billable. Saturday is mostly non-billable. And then Sunday is the Korean vegan. That's kind of the way that I view like my schedule. It's hard. Uh, Now, obviously with TikTok, again, I do eat every night. Eating is a (laughs) non-negotiable, like, you know. There's a little multitasking there. I was going to eat anyway. need anyway if I need to throw on a camera I've, I've gotten really efficient with my process so that there is that but like production writing emailing all of that stuff for the Korean vegan is basically saved for one day a week and then everything else is really you know foley work at least that's the way I've tried to do it as much as possible because otherwise it becomes too hard to manage it all runs together. Absolutely. And I mean, it's it's not that like that this is all necessarily easy to accomplish. I'm sure you need to be somewhat regimented. But two things I will I will share. One, you know, one of the reasons I put po- I started this podcast was because storytelling is so important. And so I deeply appreciate the stories you're telling because there is that, you know, learning about other cultures, whatever you want to call it, you know, inclusion, racial equity, whatever component. So that's fantastic. But you've also shared quite a bit about your own well-being and health journey, which I feel terrible because we both have to get off this <laughs> this interview shortly. But within legal and attorney well-being, it's such a big topic. So I don't even know if there's any comment to make on that, but I have to say it because I think it's important that we do have, you know, role models within our firm, within our industry who are bringing all of that together. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. No, I think wellness is, uh, you know, I hate using buzzwords, but wellness is an important word because one thing, especially because, you know, as you noted, I don't look anything like I did 15 years ago. And a lot of people ask me about that. I will tell you, Gary Rovner, if you're listening, he did not recognize me at the partner. (laughs) Well, and I just say, so I said that before we started recording. And so before we started recording, everyone, I told Joanne, yeah, we totally like went to lunch probably a couple of times when I was a summer. I remember your name, but your physical transformation, you look very different from what I was a summer. So that's what you were referring to. Yes. Yeah. 
So you were not the only, there have been a few people at the firm who literally be like, who are you? <laughs> like, I'm Joanne, I've been here since 2004. But yeah, so I think like, I have really learned over the past few years that health cannot just be about physical health. It absolutely cannot just be about physical health because they are related. Physical and mental health are so interrelated. And you cannot be a healthy person if you focus on your physical health at the expense of your mental health. Of your mental health. Absolutely. That has really been a big thing for me. And uh, yeah, part of that is making sure that you don't eat Frito-Lays and, you know, five-hour energy drinks as your dinner, which is what I used to do sometimes, you know, late at night at the Foley and Lardner offices, you know, but you know, you have to learn that, that that's not okay. Like it's not okay for your brain, not okay for your body. Well, and I think, I think feeling it or experiencing it. So a lot of people, like I had my own health journey and it wasn't until I started to feel good or feel better that I was like, oh, if I actually had energy, like I could do more things <laughs> and be, be better for myself and my friends and my work and my family and all of that. And this is something we could talk a very long time about. I mean, I don't know, maybe people demand a part two and we will. But in our last couple of minutes, wrapping up, I just want to give you a moment to share any overall advice or reflections you may have, you know, on your path. I'm not quite sure what audience you'd want to style this to, but I want to just give you the opportunity to, to do it. Yeah, I think that the advice that I would give is largely based upon the discussion that we've had or is kind of crystallized by that, which is don't be so focused on the goal that you lose sight of the journey. It's okay to question the legitimacy of that goal. Even if you're thinking right now is, no, law school, law school, law school, law school, law school, or lawyer, 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 lawyer. If you decide a year from now, maybe that's not for me, or maybe I don't want to do that, or maybe there's something better out there, or maybe I just don't need to be committed to it right now. That's totally okay. Be committed to your moment. Be committed to yourself in that day, in that month, in that, you know, and then you can make that decision later on because if you are committed today, you'll at least give yourself the opportunity to change your mind or recommit to it at some point in the future. But if you don't commit to yourself today, then you may lose that opportunity before you even realize it. That is very powerful. There's nothing I can add to that. A perfect note to end on. Although I will say, if people want to reach out and, you know, within Foley, they find it in the Foley website, can they feel free to shoot you an email? Absolutely. I get a lot of them. <laughs> I bet you do. I was like, or, you know, we mentioned DMs. There's that option as well. But with that, thank you so much for being on the show, Joanne. I very much had fun. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Joanne Molinaro. I am compelled to add an outro on to give you some updates as to Joanne's success. Well, the first thing to note is that Joanne has actually transitioned from a partner at Foley to of counsel. She remains affiliated with the firm, but is spending her time these days focusing on her many other endeavors, specifically the ones as the Korean vegan. After our podcast, I would say about a year after, Joanne released her cookbook titled The Korean Vegan which quickly became a New York Times bestseller. Since then, you may have caught her on Food Network, CBS Saturday Morning, or even ABC's Live with Kelly and Ryan. Foley and Lardner wishes Joanne all the success in the world. And if you would like to know more about Joanne, I encourage you to check her out at thekoreanvegan.com or any of her other social media handles, which are also The Korean Vegan on Instagram and TikTok. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it. 
subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Thank you.